Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Samuel Goldman. Samuel teaches political science at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. in the United States. We're going to be talking to Samuel today about his, his new book, God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, recently published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Samuel, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you for speaking with me, Crawford. It's great to have you here. Before we talk about your work, could you tell us about yourself? Well, uh, I grew up mostly in the New York area where I had a very conventional sort of suburban upper middle class uh, life of the sort that one sees on television. Um, I went to college without a strong sense of my interests or goals and sort of drifted into graduate school as a good place for someone who didn't know quite what to do with his life um, to spend a few years. And in graduate school, uh, I became really fascinated with the way in which religious texts and arguments and language and concepts um, are used to frame and to provide a foundation for political arguments, um, not only in the past, but uh, even today, at least in the United States. And that's really the background for this book. Now, is this book related to any previous publications or projects that you've completed? Well, I had uh, written in graduate school a dissertation on um, Benedict Spinoza, the 17th century Dutch Jewish philosopher, um, and Leo Strauss, the 20th century German Jewish philosopher, um, and his interlocutor Carl Schmitt, and their discussion of the role of political theology um, in generating uh, modern political concepts and institutions. Um, But I became very dissatisfied with what I had done because it all seemed very abstract and very distant from any contemporary interest. So I spent about two years struggling to turn my dissertation into a book and was unsuccessful. But it occurred to me that in Christian Zionism, we encounter a living and breathing political theology that has roots in the Reformation um, and has been a feature of American and Anglo-American political discourse for many centuries, um, but is still politically relevant uh, and and uh, can be um, observed today. So I, I shifted my my interests and my academic skills, such as they are, um, from the study of more conventional texts in political theory um, to the the kind of work that I do in the book. Now, you do discuss this term political theology in some of the early pages in the book, but for any readers uh, who might not be familiar with the concept, could you tell us a little bit about what this term means, political theology? 
So the term was popularized by Carl Schmitt, uh, who was a German legal and political theorist in the 1920s and 1930s, um, initially associated with a loose group of thinkers who were called the conservative revolutionaries. Um, in the 1930s, he became a member uh, of the Nazi party, um, a, a decision for which he never apologized and which he never renounced. But in one of his books of the 1920s, uh, he argued that all significant political concepts are secularized theological concepts. Um, in other words, that the, the, the language that we use to make sense of political authority and ruling institutions is often or always derived from religion. And Schmidt titled that book Political Theology, um, which has become uh, something of a buzzword ever since. And one of the things you do in the introduction to the book is you relate that kind of terminology and its ideological hinterland to the subject that you're especially interested in, this subject of Christian Zionism. Very briefly, what is Christian Zionism? So I define Christian Zionism um, as the belief that there should be a Jewish state in some portion of the biblical promised land um, on the basis of explicitly uh, Christian authorities, texts or premises. Um, and I define it in this way to avoid two exaggerations that I think are found in some of the other literature on this subject. Um, one defines Christian Zionism as any support for the Zionist movement or the state of Israel or the ideas that inspired them um, by Gentiles. And I think that definition is simply too broad. There are lots of reasons that a, a non-Jew or, or someone of nominally Christian affiliation might uh, might take those positions. The other exaggeration is too narrow. Um, it identifies Christian Zionism with the specific prophetically inspired version of support for not just the state of Israel, but for uh, Israeli control of all of the biblical promised land, um, which has been expressed by some American fundamentalists and evangelicals in the last 50 or 60 years. And just as the definition of Christian Zionism that applies to all Gentiles seems too broad, um, a definition of Christian Zionism that might describe Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson, but not, say, Reinhold Niebuhr, seems to me too narrow. So I've tried to chart a course uh, between those two possibilities. Now, how does your approach compare to that of other books that deal with the phenomenon of Christian Zionism? Well, I think that um, my, my book is unusual in attempting to make connections between the origins of Christian Zionism in Protestant and particularly Calvinist theology uh, in the 16th century to its more recent political expressions um, in America. This is not by any means a uh, connection that I have discovered. And I try throughout the book to point readers toward uh, scholars who have preceded me. But what 
I attempted to do, which I think is is novel, is to connect some of the dots that other writers have identified and to show that while there certainly has been change between the Christian Zionism or Christian proto-Zionism expressed by a New England Puritan figure like Increase Mather and that of uh, John Hagee, who is a prominent Christian Zionist leader today, um, there are also important elements of continuity. So if you were going to summarize your argument as a whole in this book, what would you say your argument was? My argument is that Christian Zionism is much older than the post-war revival of evangelical Christianity in the United States associated with figures like Billy Graham. Um, and it's even older than the influence of premillennial dispensationalism, which is a theological movement that was not, I think, invented, but was synthesized and most effectively promoted by the Anglo-Irish uh, evangelist and theologian John Nelson Darby in the middle of the 19th century, and which had Zionist or uh, uh, proto-Zionist implications, but really, as I've suggested, goes back to the 16th century and to the the emergence of um, Protestantism and particularly Calvinist strands of Protestantism um, that emphasized the uh, plain meaning of, of Scripture um, and also the significance of covenant as a theological concept. And I, I think it's from um, the return to Scripture and especially to uh, the, the Hebrew Bible or so-called Old Testament um, and the emphasis on covenant that Christian Zionism emerges. So the introduction to the book, the beginning of the book, takes its place very much in early modernity. It looks back, of course, to the Church Fathers. You mention Oregon, Irenaeus, Eusebius, etc., as individuals who've got an interest in working through what the proper exegesis of some of these prophetic passages in Scripture might be. But you, you root your discussion very much in early modernity, uh, and you then look forward and, and bring us up to the present day. It's a vast and complex uh, and discursively intertwined um, period that you're interested in. How did you set out to decide upon a structure through which to describe it? Well, I, that's something that I really struggled with, and I, I don't know how successful I was. Um, I should confess that I, I am not a trained historian or scholar of religion. My um, uh, PhD is in political science, specifically political theory. So uh, at certain points, I found myself rather out of my Depth, But what I tried to do was to break the story into discrete moments to which I could draw readers' attention um, and then make connections between. Um, so the first part of the book is really focused, as you've said, on um, early uh, modernity. Um, the second part of the book um, is focused on the early United States or, or 
the early Republic through uh, the late 19th century. Uh, then the final section of the book concentrates on the 20th century. Um, and although this is not exhaustive and there are many other currents and strands that I might have tracked down, um, it, it seemed to me um, a way to focus on the elements of particular interest, at least um, at least to me, um, without uh, avoiding some of the other complexities. Now, it's, it's a, actually, I think it's a very successful structure, Samuel, and you move very effectively through this uh, quite complex body of, of work. But beginning as you do uh, in the post-Reformation period, are you happy to use the label Christian Zionism to describe what you see in the 16th and 17th centuries? It's a, it's a term of art, and I do discuss this a little bit in the book. So um, some scholars prefer to speak not of Christian Zionism, but rather of Christian Restorationism. And what they mean by that is the prophetically inspired belief uh, in a return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, um, probably in close temporal connection with the second coming of Christ, although there was some debate about which event would happen first, um, and also involving the, the spiritual or religious conversion of the Jewish people to Christianity, even as they might um, maintain uh, some uh, ethnic or cultural distinction. Um, and that, of course, is, is very different to Zionism as the term is used today um, or as, as it was popularized by uh, Theodore Herzl at the end of the 19th century. So I can understand why some writers hesitate to speak of Christian Zionism in the 17th century or even the 18th century. Um, that said, uh, I do think that there is enough continuity to justify uh, using one term, provided that it's properly qualified. And throughout the book, when I'm speaking of a figure like Increase Mather, um, I, I do emphasize that he, he was not um, what uh, Herzl would, would have recognized as a Zionist. Now, in these early chapters, there's, there's a, a discussion going on among some of your subjects about where the millennium will begin or where uh, the, the rule of Christ in the millennial period will be based. What kinds of arguments are they having? Well, they're trying to determine um, what what sort of thing the, the millennium or the thousand year uh, uh, reign, um, which is described in the book of Revelation, is going to be. And the uh, conventional view, certainly the dominant uh, Catholic view, um, had been that the church itself was the millennial kingdom. So you, you started counting, in effect, from the death of, uh, of Jesus. Um, what some of these Protestant writers began to do was to challenge this and to argue not only on the basis of uh, scripture, both uh, the the New Testament and um, the prophetic books of the Hebrew Bible, but also returning to some of the church fathers, that the millennial kingdom would be a a, a literal 
kingdom. It would be some kind of social or political community um, and that it would be governed uh, from the city of Jerusalem, which would be rebuilt. And in this way, um, distinctively Christian prophecies of the millennial reign of Christ intersect with some of the Hebrew prophecies of the uh, restoration of Israel, um, most of them um, from the period of the so-called Babylonian captivity. So there's there's a lot of, um, I won't say conflation, but connection being drawn between revelation on the one hand um, and uh, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah on the other. Now, when do we see this becoming a particularly American discussion, Samuel? Initially, it's not particularly American. Um, it, it emerges from um, from Calvinism, and Calvin uh, himself was, of course, French and based in Switzerland. And there are strong currents of what I'm calling Christian Zionism also to be found in Calvinist churches in the Netherlands um, and in Britain, particularly in Scotland, as a matter of fact. Um, it becomes American, not so much because it has a distinctively American origin, but because it lasts longer there. Um, so as as your listeners know, uh, beginning in about uh, 1620, there is um, a, a an exodus, as as they saw it, um, of uh, Puritans from uh, England. To New England, um, they bring with them these ideas, and they continue to cultivate and and propagate them there after they have ceased to be fashionable um, in much of Europe. Um, so by the uh, later um, 18th century, um, these old Calvinist ideas are are more or less forgotten in um, in in the Netherlands, um, to some extent in Scotland and to some extent in England, but they remain a living tradition in America. And that's that's a tradition that continues to this day. Now, in America, your, your book shows uh, these traditions were taken up in very particular ways to make very distinctive arguments about the American situation and also perhaps about American geography. Could you talk us through some of those issues that you describe in the book? Yes, so there there is uh, an influential interpretation um, of the Puritan experience in particular and the American experience more broadly associated with historians like uh, Perry Miller or Sock von Berkovich. Um, and this interpretation holds that many of the British settlers of North America and then um, or citizens of the early American Republic saw themselves as successors to the biblical Israel. Um, and they interpreted their migration to North America as a kind of exodus, as, as I mentioned. Um, and they saw their activity there as, as an errand in the wilderness, uh, under which they would be purified, uh, by, by suffering and would go on to conquer and rule their own promised land. Um, and you can see a, expressions of, of this idea, um, if you look at place names, um, particularly, but not only in New England, um, uh, the, the 
coast of the North Atlantic um, is is filled with places with names like Salem, Jerusalem, um, Sharon, like the plains of Sharon in the Bible, um, and 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 so on. Um, so my my goal or my argument is is not that this interpretation is exactly wrong, but that it is slightly too simple. Yes, there is a tradition of conceiving America itself as a new promised land and Americans as a new chosen people. But at the same time, um, at least some influential religious and political figures insisted that God's covenant with the people of Israel remained in force, and that while the American experience might resemble that of the biblical Israel, it didn't replace it. So there are sort of two parallel tracks that intertwine in certain ways. Um, when Americans look at their own history and their own uh, landscape, um, to a surprising extent, they have seen the biblical Israel and the biblical promised land. And yet more recently, when Americans look at the modern state of Israel, they often see themselves a version of their own story. So what I was trying to do was to sort of capture these these reflections and resonances, um, which uh, other other writers, I think, have not have not sufficiently appreciated. There's a really wonderful passage in, in one of your middle chapters where you describe the new world as this eschatologically empty space uh, where no one has quite decided how it fits into the apocalyptic narrative. Uh, you show us a number of um, settlers, uh, colonists, uh, all the way through to the beginning of the 18th century, identifying Native American populations as members of the Lost Tribes of Israel and so on. Why is that significant and how does that help us understand links between New England and Utah, for example. Well, I think that the the idea that North America had some eschatological role to play, including um, perhaps being the the um, ultimate location of the lost tribes of Israel, allowed Americans and and New Englanders to see themselves as playing a role in the biblical narrative and in the broad sweep of, of sacred history without usurping the role of the people and land of Israel, which uh, many of them believed it would be blasphemous to do. So it, it was a, it was a way of saying, OK, we can't be the main event of the story, but we do have a role to play. Um, and the the idea that the Native Americans might belong to the lost tribes um, was uh, proposed as early as the middle of the 17th century and was propagated, I think, most famously um, by the uh, Puritan minister and missionary uh, John John Eliot, who's famous for being the first to translate uh, the Bible into a Native American language. This is another one of these ideas that was popular um, through that was popular uh, fairly widely in the 17th century, um, but we went out of fashion just about everywhere except America. So through uh, the 18th century, 
the idea that Native Americans uh, might be descendants of, of the Lost Tribes is repeated by American religious figures, including Jonathan Edwards, Jr., uh, the, the, the son of the great theologian Jonathan Edwards, um, and by the early 19th century had become really a, a staple of um, American popular religious literature. And this is the moment in which uh, uh, Joseph Smith uh, arises to um, announce the uh, additional revelation of the Book of Mormon, um, which makes precisely this claim about the ancestry of the Native Americans. So uh, Smith was was not uh, was not a Puritan, um, and the Puritans would have been horrified by his theology and moral teachings. And yet, this old Puritan idea was part of the background for the religious movement he founded. Um, and if uh, if you do not uh, accept the Mormon view that the Book of Mormon was divinely revealed to Joseph Smith, um, it may even have helped in inspire his his composition of that text. Now, in the book, you accompany your discussion of Mormonism uh, with the, a discussion of the revival of premillennial belief through the 19th century. You've already mentioned John Nelson Darby and his contribution to that. At what point does dispensational premillennialism become Zionist? The, the relation between pre and and post millennial interpretations um is is a complicated one and my feeling is that in much of the existing literature it has received excessive emphasis um there were many post-millennial uh, prophecy interpreters and, and theologians um, who endorsed elements of what I am calling Christian Zionism. There were also premillennialists who, who rejected them. So I, I don't think that's the, the central category. That said, um, the public uh, acceptance of Christian Zionism was very successfully promoted by premillennialists influenced by Darby in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, and I'm thinking of figures like uh, Dwight Moody, uh, who, who gave his name to the Moody Bible Institute, um, uh, William E. Blackstone, um, who composed a petition uh, urging the president of the United States, uh, at that time, President Harrison, to lend American diplomatic support to the establishment of some kind of autonomous Jewish entity uh, in the Holy Land, um, or Cyrus Schofield, uh, the, the Bible editor um, who included uh, Christian Zionist uh, themes and interpretations in the notes to um, the the edition of the Bible that he produced. So I think that it's it's really in the later 19th century that premillennialists begin to argue that there is a connection between their belief in the ultimate restoration of the Jewish people um, and 
normal political action um, through diplomatic and electoral channels. And as I point out in in the book, that's actually um, a break with Darby himself. Um, Darby was at best skeptical of, of human politics, and I think dismissive might be a more accurate term, um, although he, he did believe that God would uh, restore the, the people of Israel to the land of Israel. He didn't think that human beings were going to have very much to do with that process. Um, but Americans are uh, an optimistic people and in many ways a voluntaristic people. We like we like doing things for ourselves. So that skeptical element um, tended to get lost in the American reception of Darby. And that's how um, people like Blackstone, despite their belief um, in uh, a miraculous restoration and indeed their their belief in a rapture such that they themselves would not be on earth uh, to witness this occurring, nevertheless began to um, uh, develop more conventional techniques of political organization. I think it's one of the most striking things about your book, Samuel, that you take us so effectively from Darby's anti-political stance to the incredibly politicised discourse that modern Christian Zionism is. If I can ask you to turn from being political scientist, stroke historian, stroke religious studies scholar, to actually become a prophet yourself, could I ask you to conjecture what you think the future of Christian Zionism might be? Well, I, I talk about this a little bit at the end of the book, and of course, um, prophecy is, is challenging, even for those who are, are actually prophets. Um, but I think, and uh, since I am a political scientist, I can't resist mentioning it, there, there may even be data to suggest that the future of Christian Zionism is less American than the present or immediate past of Christian Zionism. Um, as a very recent uh, Pew survey documents released just within the last few days, um, the secularization of American society continues, um, particularly among the young. Um, and that suggests that the influence of Christian Zionism may wane with the influence of Christianity more broadly, and especially the influence of the particular evangelical strands with which Christian Zionism has become um, associated. But the success of American missionaries in places like Brazil and parts of Africa has created whole new constituencies for Christian Zionism. And the state of Israel, uh, being aware of this, has also invested uh, considerable diplomatic energy in, in cultivating these communities. So just as the story begins with a, a transfer of Christian Zionism um, from the northwest of Europe to North America, um, the, the next chapter may involve another chapter. Uh, another transfer from uh, America um, to uh, parts of uh, the global south. Well, Samuel, you've given us a real treat in this book, God's Country, Christian Zionism in America, just published by University of Pennsylvania Press. And it's been great to, to hear you talk about some of its central themes. Before we wind up today, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? I am furiously rushing to finish a short book on nationalism, which is the topic du jour here uh, 
at the moment. Um, and in particular, I, I'm trying to understand the association between different forms of American nationalism and different um, uh, religious movements and theological concepts. So it's an extension of, of some of the same interests uh, into a new subject. Well, that sounds great. It sounds important and very timely too. But for now, Samuel, thank you very much for writing this book and for coming on to the show to talk about it. Thank you for your time and take care. Thank you for talking to me. It was a pleasure. And thank you to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. <laughs>